Good afternoon again. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I hope everybody enjoyed your uh, lunch. It sounds like you certainly enjoyed your conversation. <laughs> Very good. Um, it, is, uh, it is my uh, distinct pleasure to introduce uh, Tom Campbell, which many of you know and I'm sure many of you supported over the years. Tom is currently the dean of the Chapman University School of Law. He represented, <laughs> he represented Silicon Valley as a, a five-term U.S. congressman. He served two years in the California uh, State Legislature. He's also been a professor at Stanford Law School, a dean of the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Ber Berkeley. A New Yorker article, which New Yorker's an interesting magazine, described uh, Tom as perversely independent, uh, which I think is a great characteristic. <laughs> Tom said in the same article that smaller government leads to more individual liberty, both economic and social, which we obviously agree with. Tom has a doctorate in economics from the University of Chicago, where Milton Friedman was his advisor, kind of the best advice you can get and is a Harvard Law School uh, graduate. Um, his focus in the academic area, which I think is very important, is the application of economics to law. It's kind of sorry that so many lawyers really don't understand economics, and I think we get a lot of bad law because they don't understand economics. Um, he has written in multiple publications, the Harvard Law Review, the Columbia Law Review, the Sanford Law Review, and many others. And this is interesting, he and his wife also volunteer in third world countries where they teach business strategy and constitutional law, which is, I think, a very nice thing for him to do and very good for the world. So Tom, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be back at Cato. I want to thank you for inviting me. I want to particularly recognize your kindness in, 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 uh, in making this uh, opportunity available, John, and uh, applaud your leadership of Cato. And I also want to recognize with uh, my deepest heartfelt thanks, Ed Crane, uh, for all the work that you did for Cato and for us, for our country. Uh, and, uh, and go Bears. Uh, my my uh, text today deals with the exercise of executive authority. And I wish to begin by saying that I am going to try my best to present a neutral as opposed to perhaps a, a political uh, presentation. Uh, I am now privileged to be dean of the, of the, of the law school at, uh, at Chapman. And uh, I took a vow of non-political engagement while, while dean. Uh, this is a wise way uh, to succeed. Uh, before that, Suzanne and I were both at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, and uh, we uh, were privileged to make the move from Northern California to Southern California. And I wanted to recognize my wife's presence here as well, the love of my life, Suzanne, is here as well. well I am grateful to President Obama. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> uh, but for him, <laughs> I would not be able to give the following examples. I, now, I'm going to point that there are other presidents, but bombing in Libya without congressional authorization, bombing in Syria with the only claim that ISIS is an offshoot of al-Qaeda and hence is okay under the 9-11 authority power. Get president's health care law uh, suspended throughout the year of 2014 by the president alone. President's health care uh, suspending the obligation to carry insurance um, by anybody who had their insurance coverage changed in, uh, in, uh, because of the uh, president's health care law. The granting of money to states that did not set up their own exchanges despite the fact that the law says it is only for states that do set up their own exchanges. The President has ordered the Department of Homeland Security not to deport anyone who has been here five years, entered the United States under the age of 16, and is not a security risk or a serious criminal, whatever the law says to the contrary notwithstanding. The President further ordering the Homeland Security not to deport parents of children who are citizens of legal residence. The President has ordered the Department of Homeland Security to provide work permits to these persons who are not here legally. The President has appointed members of the National Labor Relations Board during what he called a recess of the United States Senate, even when the Senate itself did not call it a recess. 
The president has instructed the Department of Justice not to prosecute marijuana sales or possession cases in states where state law has permitted such sales, and the president has refused to print Jerusalem, Israel, as a place of birth on U.S. passports. Thank you, President Obama, for giving me the ability to speak today. But I want to put in context that this is not unique. Other presidents have exercised a remarkable amount uh, uh, and, and even depth of uh, executive authority. To put a few in context, 1951, President Truman ordered the United States Army to take possession of the steel mills with no statutory authority at all, simply because it was during the Korean War and a strike was imminent. 1970, President Richard Nixon ordered EPA not to release funds that were available and to do according to the law to New York City because and he totaled up the total amount of money we had and the total amount of projects to spend. We had less money than projects and therefore he said he was going to impound on his own, no guidance from Congress. 1940, President Franklin D. Roosevelt traded U.S. naval ships to Britain in return for leases on British naval bases in Newfoundland and West Indies when the Congress had refused to authorize sales to the Allies. He did the, the, uh, the trade and gave the, uh, the British at the time of great need uh, their, uh, uh, this, the United States uh, uh, ba uh, battleships. 1916, President Wilson paid for U.S. commercial shipping to be armed against U-boat attacks before World War I, even though Congress had forbidden action against the belligerents or taking sides. President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, 1939, expunged United States citizens' claims against the Soviet Union by executive agreement with the Soviet Union. Unilaterally, no action of Congress. So President Obama is not completely all by himself. Uh, but I do repeat, he has given me a great list of examples that allows me to make the presentation today. And, and the message I wish to convey is, in large part, presidents, and certainly it's true President Obama, but presidents generally, exercise executive authority because Congress lets them. And we must deal with that as a reality, that Congress does not want, oftentimes, to take the responsibility. And the other uh, subtext will be the courts then have in my judgment, abdicated their responsibility to provide a means of resolving disputes between the President and the, and the Congress. So those are my two subtexts. And I'll begin with, the, with a, a quick vignette. Uh, in uh, 1999, uh, President uh, Clinton ordered the bombing of Belgrade, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, for 79 days. The War Powers Resolution says, no United States troops may be inserted into a situation of hostilities or where hostilities are reasonably imminent for more than 60 days without the approval of Congress. On the 61st day, I went to the House floor and made a motion. I had two motions. One, that the United States troops be withdrawn from the theater of operations uh, in and above the airspace of Yugoslavia uh, because there had been no declaration of war or authorization to do so. And the second, the United States hereby declares war on Yugoslavia. You choose, but do your job. You're a congressman. You're obliged to take a stand. Well, I want to tell you, and this is the sad aspect of my remarks, that I was visited by the chief of staff to the Speaker of the House, Denny Hastert, and uh, by, I, I was telephoned by Richard Gebhardt, the leading Democrat. And the, leading, uh, uh, and the argument of, uh, of the chief of staff was, we don't want to have our fingerprints on this. If this war goes well, all, all of us can point to the fact that there was a defense appropriation and we voted for the defense appropriation so we can take credit. But if it goes bad, this is Clinton's war. We don't want to take this vote. That was the head of my party in the House of Representatives. And uh, Dick Gebhardt's argument was a little bit <laughs> more um, um, in keeping with my upbringing in the city of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey. We let Bush have his war, why don't you let us have ours? <laughs> so that, that, is, that is an example of where Congress has, has, has failed to do uh, what Congress is uh, responsible uh, for and, sh and, should, and should have done. Uh, but I want to uh, point out at the beginning, I'm going to use foreign policy as a beginning example and then move to domestic policy. I'm going to deal with government, excuse me, executive action and executive non-action. Because for example, in immigration, we have official non-action. And then I want to conclude by how we might be able to solve these problems. So in the area of foreign policy, there is something to be very, very much to be recognized that the president does have a legitimate role, and it is not entirely limited to what the Constitution might say. 
And here's the argument, the argument advanced by Alexander Hamilton in a debate with James Madison in 1793. Goes back that far that we've been fighting over these things. President George Washington said, France and England are at war. I think America should be neutral. James Madison in the House of Representatives said, well, that's all well and good, but you're not able to declare neutrality. The Constitution says Congress shall declare war, and the closest thing to being neutral is being de declaring neutral is to be declaring war. So it should fall to Congress. Alexander Hamilton came up with the following theory. He said, no, you understand, when we became a country, all of the sovereign powers of the United Kingdom devolved upon the United States. And the sovereign in England had the authority to conduct international relations, to declare war, or to declare neutrality. Now, to the extent that the power to declare war was explicitly put in the Constitution for the Congress, so be it. But all the other authorities devolve upon the present. As you might guess, Alexander Hamilton. If he could, I suspect, God rest his good soul, he would have had a king. So he liked executive authority. And James Madison disagreed with him. The humorous point is 1798 uh, comes around. Uh, and, uh, excuse me, 1803 comes, ar comes around. James Madison is now Secretary of State to uh, President Thomas Jefferson. Uh, we are engaged in an undeclared war against the Barbary pirates. <laughs> and Madison um, rediscovers his love of those devolved powers from the King of England. <laughs> True story. So you have to begin by saying that there are some powers that the President has by reason of his ability to carry on. Uh, international relations, if, if for no better reason than if he doesn't have them, who does? And then the more obvious examples of responding to attack. But the key to understanding the breach of executive authority is where Congress shares authority, has spoken, and has set a, 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 a regime in place, has created a set of rules. Then it is obligatory for the president to follow those rules. And indeed, that's what the Supreme Court ruled in that case involving Harry Truman seizing the steel mills. The president said, well, I have the authority because we're at war, Korean War, and we need the steel for the production of war material. And um, the Supreme Court, in striking down his claim, said, well, no, Congress dealt with strikes in the, Na in the National Labor Relations Act, the Taft-Hartley. And that set was a regime to deal with the potential damage from strikes. Taft-Hartley set up a cooling off, off period. So that's Congress has occupied this field. Congress has spoken. And when Congress has spoken, uh, it's obligatory for you to, uh, to step back. Now, Congress has set rules regarding the use of force. And the War Powers Resolution, to which I referred just a moment ago, was such a set of rules in 1973. Uh, and the rules were Congress cannot, uh, excuse me, the President cannot put troops into a situation of hostilities uh, without, the prior, without the approval of Congress after 60 days. Well, before the, I took this vote to the House floor that I just described, I was, I was on the International Relations Committee, and we invited uh, the Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, to come and testify. And I said, uh, are bombs falling on Belgrade? She said, yes. And I said, is it an act of war for one country to bomb another country? And she says, oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you figure it out. You're the law professor. And that was a, a denigrating sort of answer. Uh, it was to say, oh, well, we don't, we don't have to, to, to worry about that. You're the, uh, that that's a matter for, for, for lawyers. Uh, no, the law was written explicitly to deal with Vietnam. Right? It was 1973. And so that's why they didn't say war. They said hostilities or a situation where hostilities are reasonably imminent. The Secretary of Defense was uh, Bill Cohen at the time. And um, I uh, asked, uh, asked him, and he said, uh, well, uh, but he hadn't humorously read the War Powers Resolution before coming over. And uh, I said, are we at war in Yugoslavia? He says, no, 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 we're not at war. And I said, are, are we in hostilities? And he says, yeah, yeah, we're in hostilities. Got a correction th that afternoon. The secretary did not mean to say we were in hostilities. Uh, so I sent back a note and said, so what are we in? Uh, and uh, the answer came back from the legal office of the State Department. We're in armed conflict. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the Clintonian, Jesuitical, any, <laughs> any adjective you wish, and I don't mean to, to cast aspersions on the good Jesuits by putting those two in the same sentence. Uh, you can make those distinctions. So that's an example where Congress has been very narrow, clear, here are the rules you must follow. I'll tell you in a, in a little bit later that eventually, since the House voted, made the, it, took, it took this vote, what the, what the vote was, uh, two, two congresspersons voted in favor of going to war. Uh, uh, a majority voted against 
withdrawing the troops right away. And Dick Gebhardt introduced a resolution. He was the leader of the Democrats. He wouldn't want it to be on the floor. Uh, but uh, since it was on the floor for a vote, he said, here's a resolution to approve everything the president's already done, but nothing new. <laughs> uh, and that, that vote was 213 yes, 213 no, evenly divided. So we didn't have the support of the House. So I went to the, to the, to the United States uh, District Court in Washington and from there to the United States Court of Appeals in Washington. And I was uh, told, uh, you cannot bring your lawsuit because you don't have standing. And I made the following argument uh, in the brief that was argued by a superb uh, legal team. All I did was to urge them on, and I, I did a little bit of work on, on the brief. Uh, and the, the way the, the, the case was decided, uh, they said, Congress, you've got your other means of solving this problem, so don't bring us your problems. And I put to you, and I put to the court, it's exactly when the legislative and the executive branch cannot resolve their problems that there is resort to the court. That is, that is the peaceful way of dealing with it. And in the court's opinion, they, the, the majority said, well, you can always cut off money for, for war. No, the bill to cut off the appropriation would be vetoed by the president. It would thus require two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate to cut off the appropriation for war. Whereas, if my theory is right, and in deciding whether I have standing as a member of Congress to bring the lawsuit, you have to assume the theory is right. That's a standard rule of law. I should have been able to stop war by a single House majority, because you need a majority of both Senate and House in order to get into war. So you couldn't really make the case that, uh, uh, that, that uh, I had an adequate remedy at, at law. And uh, one of the other judges uh, said that, uh, oh, well, you can always impeach the president. <laughs> said, yeah, well, we tried that too. <laughs> So that's where you've got a clear de delineation of Congress says, here's what the rule should be. I want to give you an ex example the other way. And this is the 9-11 uh, resolution that passed the House and Senate uh, uh, almost unanimously. Everybody in the House voted for it, except uh, Barbara Lee, the congresswoman from uh, Berkeley. Uh, the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines Plan, he determines, I'm going to emphasize things here, he determines, planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. So that's an example where Congress said, it's all yours. But at least Congress acted. And note that this, at least uh, colorably, I, 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 would, I think the president is within his rights to say, uh, reaches the actions in Syria and reaches the actions in Iraq uh, because ISIS is an offspring of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was responsible for the attacks, and we are trying to prevent such attacks in the future. The, the problem, in other words, is in this instance the Congress gave a blank check. It, it, it abrogated its responsibility by passing a law as opposed to previously abrogating its responsibility by not wanting to vote uh, and the court abrogating its experience by not, willing, by not being willing to take a case. Uh, so there are examples in the domestic field as well. Uh, Congress gives broad discretion in Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank uh, law has 148 specific instances where it calls on the regulatory agencies, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, and other agencies, but that was the newly one created, to issue laws that will, regulations I should say, that will fill in the blanks in the laws. And the standards under Dodd-Frank were the broadest you can imagine. Uh, such as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is hereby authorized to take action against unfair practices in finance. I, I don't think it's fair that I have to pay a mortgage that's a little bit higher than my comfort zone. Uh, it's not fair. Uh, and then similarly, the, the panel that determines what institutions are financially critical. Uh, they, 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 that's essentially unreviewed. So that's an example where Congress has given a broad degree of uh, discretion. Uh, one of the areas where the Congress has also given broad discretion, although this has not, in my judgment, received the attention it deserves, is immigration. Uh, because President Obama, in my judgment, acted within his rights 
I'm not here to say it was good or bad, although I'll be, we're happy to hear your discussion on that. I am simply here to say that Congress, like they did in Dodd-Frank, like they did in 9-11, handed the authority to the president. And here's what it reads. Any alien, and this is the, the existing law, long before President Obama became president, any alien in and admitted to the United States shall, upon the order of the Attorney General, be removed if the alien is within one or more of the following classes of deportable aliens. So Congress says it's got to fit those categories, but whether the deportation happens or not turns on the Attorney General deciding it. And this has got a fascinating genesis. The same time Congress passed this, they created a look back. They, they said, but if we don't like your decisions regarding who doesn't get deported, we, in a single house, will be able to take a name off the list and deport him. And that issue went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held in a case called INS versus Chadha that no, a single house of Congress can't do that. So they excised that part from the law, and they left the broad grant. One of the other errors, I think, in this line of thinking is that the Congress uh, writes laws, good or bad, they write a law, and the court will sometimes excise part of it, and you end up with something Congress really didn't want. So they gave this broad power to the president, provided they could always seize, take it back and, and, and deport somebody they wanted. The latter part was taken away, and you have an exceptional amount of authority given um, to, the, to the Attorney General, which the, uh, President Obama is exercising uh, despite uh, the, the following statement by President Obama. Please forgive me for enjoying this too much. With respect to the notion that I can just suspend deportations through executive order, that's just not the case. Because there are laws on the books that Congress has passed. There are enough laws on the books by Congress that are very clear in terms of how we have to enforce our immigration system that for me to simply, through executive order, ignore those congressional mandates would not conform to my appropriate role as president. Well, that's what he used to say. And then, as you know, he's, he's, he switched his, um, his view. Uh, so in that, in that instance, the uh, president has exercised a broad level of authority that was given to him um, by the Congress. Uh, other areas where you have narrow authority on the domestic side, yeah, I gave you that example just a second before, the steel seizure case uh, where Taft-Hartley was the relevant law. Congress said you got to strike. You think the strike might up upset important things, uh, then uh, you should, uh, you, 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 uh, that's the route that you should take. Uh, other points to consider as to President uh, Obama's use of the ex executive authority on immigration. President Ronald Reagan allowed uh, immigrants from Nicaragua during the Sandinista day with the Daniel Ortega's first time in office uh, without granting asylum, without granting a formal, going through the formal process. He just said, you're here, you, you, you get to stay, it's all right. Um, President Bush did the same for uh, international students who had to overstay their visas because they had to make up classes after Katrina hit. So those international students who were hit hurt during the hurricane, he said, look, uh, overstay your, 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 your visa, it's okay. Uh, so it, it's happened before and not and, uh, with, with Republican presidents uh, as well. And lastly, on this subject, Congress has nevertheless acted to create specific categories, that's right, but it didn't take away the general authority that I referred to. Specific categories, for instance, are victims of domestic violence, are allowed to be uh, kept in the United States even if they don't fit any of the other categories under the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and um, this is interesting, members of families kill, who had a family member killed on 9-11 uh, were allowed to stay uh, by act of Congress. So Congress is in the field, but it has not repealed the general grant um, of authority. Uh, the clearest area for uh, this uh, debate is where the president has taken an action, and you can say it's uh, within your inherent rights, like Madison argued, uh, or Hamilton argued, and then eventually Madison argued, uh, or it's not because Congress has occupied the field. What do you do with non-action? Okay, there is a general rule. The Supreme Court in 1985 decided this court has recognized on several occasions over many years that an agency, which would be then the executive branch, so the executive branch decision not to prosecute or enforce, whether through civil or criminal process, is a decision generally committed to an agency's absolute discretion, unless Congress has indicated otherwise. 
In so holding, we essentially leave to Congress and not to the courts the decision as to whether an agency's refusal to institute proceedings should be judicially reviewable. So Congress can change it, but the presumption is non-action, who you don't prosecute, the executive uh, wins. Now, are there instances when the president has chosen not to enforce and has nevertheless been uh, ca called to account? Yes. President Nixon example with the EPA grants to the city of New York in 1970. So Congress had passed a law saying this may happen. These, these grants may be, may, be, may be made. He said, I'm holding back because of uh, the finances, impoundment. And they went to the Supreme Court and they said, no. In this instance, Congress has instructed you. So it's not your typical example of, well, I'm just choosing not to do this this grant, I'm choosing against what Congress said must be done, so Congress won. Another example is the type of typical hypothetical uh, that we've heard in this debate. Could a president, you fill in the blank, uh, Rand Paul, could a president Rand Paul <laughs> say the following to his IRS commissioner? Uh, let me think now. President Obama was able to tell companies that owed a tax in 2014, because remember, Chief Justice Roberts told us that the fine under Obamacare is really a tax. We didn't know it at the time, but now we do. It's a tax. So since President Obama told his commissioner of IRS not to collect the tax companies were owed in 2014, I'm going to tell my commissioner of IRS not to collect those taxes due on capital gains for the next eight years, or the next four years, see if you reelect me. And uh, much as I might like that outcome, uh, I would have to say he'd probably lose in that instance, uh, although you kind of wonder who's, who bring the lawsuit. <laughs> you know, I want to pay capital gains. Uh, <laughs> but the reason would be that the scheme of the law was to create a tax system that included taxation on income from any source derived, and that capital gains was part of it. Example, uh, uh, another way would be the... Uh, uh, where, dis where, where the president is simply being efficient. Uh, we've got drug sellers and we've got drug users and I've only got so many dollars and I'm going to go after the drug sellers. Or a variant of that, so that's where I'd say the president does have discretion, or a variant of that which is I can go after marijuana sales and, and waste a ton of money and a ton of time um, and maybe I should say I'll once in a while do so in some states, but why go into a state that's already expressed their desire to uh, allow a personal use of marijuana? So that, I, I would say, would be an exercise of discretion, not preempted. When Congress said, here, FDA, you have the authority to put marijuana in the list of controlled substances, they gave that authority, and the president is exercising what I might call an efficient management kind of, a, of approach. Um, you have instances as well where Congress creates a scheme that has delicately balanced. The National Labor Relations Act, to which I referred before, is, is one. And the National Labor Relations Act was amended in 1947 by the Taft-Hartley to say that from 1935 to 1947, the only unfair labor practices under federal law were those committed by companies. The only way you could violate the National Labor Relations Act was if you were an employer, not if you were a union. Then in 1947, in, in uh, uh, the, the famous Congress that uh, brought the Republicans back for the first time since uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, they passed over Truman, President Truman's veto that unions, too, could violate uh, unfair labor practice laws. Unions could, for example, by uh, violations of uh, the right of their uh, members to participate freely in elections without being coerced. Uh, if the NLRB were to say, just out of discretion, we're only going to bring cases against employers for the next four years, uh, that would also be a unacceptable use of discretion because it offends uh, the, uh, the balance. Uh, and I think that also applies, that analysis would apply to the, uh, the action in this case of, as opposed to non-action, of giving money to those states that did not set up exchanges but nevertheless got the money. You might call this the Gruber example. <laughs> He, Gruber set back what remaining respect there might be for academics in this country. <laughs> Irretrievably. Irretrievably. We are smarter than you. Uh, and we, uh, we don't tell you the truth because you can't handle it. <laughs> Jack Nicholson's phrase. Uh, so the Gruber exception uh, uh, would be, uh, look, 
we weren't going to give the money to you unless you did our bidding. So this Medicaid money under Obamacare comes if you set up your own exchange. But if you don't, no money. That's the Gruber deal. And he announced it. You can see it on video. Just you know, type in Gruber, and you can see this remarkable professor. Uh, and uh, that to say, well, even despite that, the purpose was to induce states to develop their own exchanges. To now say you get the money anyway um, undoes the, uh, the balance. So that's the way that I see the, um, the, the, the play between the president and the executive in both uh, international and, uh, and domestic. Um, on uh, the issue of Jerusalem on the passport, uh, my sense is that the president does have, here I'm kind of with Hamilton, the president explicitly in the Constitution has the authority to recognize foreign ambassadors. And that has, I think, reasonably been interpreted to mean to recognize countries. So you, that's what it means. You, here comes the ambassador from a new country. Uh, and during the days of Soviet occupation, we recognized Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia as free and independent republics, even though, in fact, they were not. Uh, that, uh, so I think it's probably within the president's uh, discretion. Congress passed a law saying anybody who wants to have their place of birth specify Israel instead of Jerusalem, excuse me, Jerusalem, comma, Israel instead of just Jerusalem, um, must be allowed to do so. And that's right now pending before the Supreme Court. But my prediction is that that is pretty close to one of those inherent presidential authorities off the premise that the president gets to recognize foreign countries. Well, my last topic is how do we enforce these distinctions? Well, the first and easiest uh, way to do so is where somebody has been hurt, where some party has been uh, damaged, they can bring a lawsuit. Here's my best example, 1799. 1799, um, we are neutral but tilting against France under President Adams. The next year, uh, two years, we would be neutral and tilting against England under President Jefferson during the Napoleonic Wars. 1799, Congress passes a law saying we authorize the seizure of all ships going to French ports. So we were engaged in an embargo of French ports. And uh, the um, uh, United States uh, uh, fledgling Navy uh, intercepted a ship coming from a French port, seized it, condemned it, and brought it into Philadelphia, uh, and the owner of the ship sued. And he said the law was vessels going to French ports. <laughs> you seized my vessel coming from French port. Went up to the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Marshall uh, held, that's right, uh, and so the president exceeded his authority, uh, 1799. Uh, and another example, which is prompted by the absolutely useless uh, suggestion by the author of the opinion in the case that struck down my lawsuit against President Clinton, uh, that you could always find a soldier to sue. So the argument that, uh, don't worry, Congress, you can do it on your own, no, I told you why, because of the two-thirds, uh, he came up with another suggestion, which was, well, Congress doesn't have to sue because a soldier can sue. In an all-volunteer army, this is not a career-enhancing step. <laughs> uh, furthermore, I can quite literally say that the president can order you're not a soldier anymore. Right? I'm commander-in-chief. You're out, and so you lose standing. So it's, it's really kind of uh, vacuous, but at least theoretically, you could find if you have a private party who brings a lawsuit, the court does not throw out private parties. They throw out congressmen and women, but not private parties. Um, what can you do about non-action? Well, once again, a good example is that New York case where New York said we were going to get money, so we're going to bring this lawsuit to enforce to get the money. Another example is the 11 states that have sued over the effects of the president's deportation opinions. So these 11 states presently have a lawsuit against the United States, uh, arguing that they are suffering more increased in the social services uh, are associated with the large number of uh, uh, aliens who are allowed to stay uh, contrary to law. The difficulty with their case, as I see it, is how do you craft a remedy? Before you go to court, you've got to present the court with a request that the court can grant. So suppose President Obama says, okay, okay, I'll deport 100. I'm no longer saying it, but not even wink, wink. I'm telling you, I've got more important things to do, so forget everything I said at that uh, news conference right, right after the election. Uh, but uh, I'm only going to go after the first hundred on the list. That's it. In other words, how do you get a court order to say, no, you must deport everybody? When is it a good faith effort? It's very hard to see how a court would craft uh, that kind of a, uh, a suggestion. 
Uh, how, do you, uh, how else you might enforce it, therefore, other than going to court? Remember, in court, private individual, probably, but it doesn't happen in every instance. Uh, and uh, and you, have, you run the risk of the, uh, the uh, uh, Congress being tossed out. Uh, well, Congress could attempt to cut off money. I talked about how that was possible uh, and, and, and not. There's another route, which is the annual appropriation route. And you're seeing this going to be played out right now in the Department of, of uh, Homeland Security. That is to say, we appropriate money for the rest of the budget, done, and we hereby appropriate money for so much of the Department of Homeland Security that does not deal with the effective amnesty. And that at least legally seems to me possible, but the President will veto the law that appropriates money for the rest of DHS, saying it doesn't cover what it needs to regarding the deportation side. And you might say, well, logically, then he's the one who's shutting the government down or shutting down the operations of the Department of, Health and, of, of Homeland Security. But in reality, politics blames the Congress. And this is exactly what we had with President Clinton and Speaker Newt Gingrich. The shutdown in 1993, in 1995, was caused because President Clinton vetoed bills that had been passed by the House and Senate that kept the government open at a level of spending lower than the president wanted. And he would rather veto it and shut down the government than continue at the level of the last year plus inflation. That's what the Republicans had put forward. And I ask everyone in the room who won that debate in the public eye. So Clinton, President Clinton, that's quite clear. Um, so lastly then, I don't think that's a, a, distinct, uh, 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 a distinctly likely successful strategy, uh, though that is the one that the House is now following. So the last step is you could try declaratory judgment. And uh, I'll conclude with this and then just give you a quick rundown of my predictions on the pending issues. Declaratory judgment, you go to court and you say, I'm not asking you to fix the problem. I know it's going to be difficult to order the president to deport more than 100 or, uh, or, 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 or to tell the president that this company must pay the tax due by not having health care for its workers under the uh, President's Health Care Act as of 2014. How many companies will you have to go after before you're obeying the, the, the mandate? Why don't we simply go to the court and say, please declare that it is a violation of law. And, the, and that's appropriate. We have declaratory judgment uh, statutes for just this reason. And what happens from that is twofold. One is you now assuming that the court so holds that the action or inaction by the president is unauthorized. You now have a court that's held it, and the president can appeal it to the Supreme Court, and what you have is U.S. versus Nixon. President Nixon said, I will obey a definitive order of the Supreme Court. First president in history to say so, by the way. Andrew Jackson did not feel that way, as, as you may remember. He said, Chief Justice Marshall has made an opinion, let him enforce it. <laughs> uh, but it's safe to say that in the current regime, and we're better for it, presidents will yield to the final definitive opinion by Supreme Court. I don't know what definitive means, 5-4, 6-3, but that was President Nixon's statement, and obviously when it came down 8 to nothing in U.S. versus Nixon, he was forced to resign. So my thought would be that if the courts would take the cases that Congress would put forward, it is a far more neutral, far less antagonistic way of resolving very important issues between the two branches, and the resolution would be a definitive statement. If the Congress then if the president ignored the order, uh, then it would be up to the Congress to decide if that does rise to the level of, uh, of, uh, uh, of impeachable offense. But I'm not urging it, and I, I would think that President Obama would then follow the same rule as, uh, as uh, President Nixon did, not necessarily in resigning, uh, but in saying that the Supreme Court is, uh, is superior in that final resolution. So my predictions, health care exchanges, the, the president's decision to give money to states that didn't set up their own exchanges, illegal. It violates the balance set up within the statute. Like or not like the Affordable Care Act, that was the balance they created, illegal to break that balance. Is it remediable? Yes, the way the law was written is unusual. Employers have particular obligations in states that have their own exchanges or that receive Medicaid money. So you actually have a private party who is bringing that lawsuit and that's pending in the Supreme Court. It is going to be resolved in my senses against the President. The decision to suspend health care for the entire, the, the health care law for the entire year 2014, 
illegal. The scheme was this law begins now, it should begin now. This is not simply saying we only have so much money and we're going to go after the big drug dealers, not the small drug users. Uh, but where do we enforce it? Sec uh, Speaker Boehner's lawsuit will, I predict, be thrown out for lack of standing under the exact same language as the case that I brought against uh, President Clinton. Uh, the Libya bombing. Uh, it was illegal. There was no declaration. There was no statement under the War Powers Resolution, and it did go on beyond the uh, allowed 60 days. But there's nobody to sue. I'm, I'm imagining, could, could a Libyan sue? Your bomb blew up my house. And the answer is no, because there's sovereign immunity. The United States does not open itself up to suits uh, as to damages, except in the specific areas set forth in the Federal Tort Claims Act, and that has an exemption for uh, diplomatic activity or undiplomatic activity. Uh, the, uh, the, the charge of uh, uh, amnesty for those who are under 16 when they came here and have stayed more than five years, Congress gave that power to the President. It's a good policy question as to whether he should have, but he has the power, so I do not believe that challenge will stand. And similarly, and similarly, the work permits. When you read the work permit statute, the Attorney General is given authority, one case by case, to grant work permits for this category of people. The NLRB appointees uh, during the recess that the Senate said already resolved the Supreme Court rule that was unconstitutional, uh, in excess of the President's authority, and uh, the case was brought by a party that didn't like one of the NLRB decisions during that time. Um, the decision not to prosecute marijuana users in states that have authorized marijuana within the President's discretion, that seems to me a rational uh, way of allocating resources for law enforcement. The marijuana laws still stay on the books and occasionally somebody will be prosecuted under it. And lastly, Jerusalem, as I've expressed my view, I think that the uh, President has that inherent authority. I'll conclude by saying that uh, th in my years in Congress, uh, the, the opportunity to bring a vote to the House floor and then to go to court and to uphold the obligation uh, to, uh, that, that the members of Congress shall declare war uh, was the accomplishment of which I'm proudest. We, I wish the court had taken it. I wish the court had done its job. But it was politically dangerous because, of course, you leave yourself open to criticism whichever way you decide, but that's, that's your duty. And in my conclusion on the House floor that, that evening, I cited, uh, I, I quoted Abraham Lincoln who said that in 1846, when he was a congressman, he said tyrants had for years been developing theories why it was necessary to go to war. And I can think of no kingly oppression more burdensome than that we go to war on the say of one man. And therefore, our founders wisely decreed that we would require the approval of the representatives of all the people before imposing that most oppressive of kingly oppressions upon us. Um, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, thank you for your attention. I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Uh, I was told to recognize two questions at a time for the sake of proceeding quickly. And I will be, so go ahead, I'm taking notes. So th uh, thanks for your remarks, Tom. Um, two questions, one specific. So the other tool that we've seen presidents use are sort of signing statements. They don't get really talked about, but essentially the bill comes, the president signs it and says, by the way, I'm not gonna abide by these several provisions. And that's never really been tested. Um, but secondly, and, and bigger concern to me is in this whole fight is the collapse of trust, which is in the end sort of how our system operates, that you can trust that something is gonna happen if you make a deal. And in the case that we have now where things are getting thrown out, we're not abiding by the laws, and there is no place to go because the courts are not taking the cases, that collapse of trust seems to me is building and building and building. Given that you were in the Congress, how do you see that playing out? Very good, thank you. And I'm supposed to take a second question and then I'll do my best to respond, please. Um, I just was curious about the authority for the choke out on the bank uh, closures for businesses that uh, they don't like what they're doing, like gun sales, ammunition sales, um, the loan. What authority is uh, the basis for those kinds of uh, rulings? Very good. Easy to answer the second question. I do not know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, don't know about that one. 
but it's something that I would obviously analyze as I did the other issues. I'd look for a statute, then I'd see if it was in the inherent authority. I don't know of any inherent authority here, so it would pretty much be decided by the statute. Sorry, I, I'm not expert in that area. Uh, as to the signing statements, your point is absolutely right. It is a ab abrogation of the president's authority, of the president's responsibility. If he believes the law is unconstitutional, he should veto it for that reason. He can no more say, well, I like this part, so I'm going to sign it, but I'm not going to enforce that part, than, than uh, in my judgment, a court can say, uh, we're going to take part of the law and let it continue, but not the rest. So signing statements have been around a long time. It's argued that they began with Woodrow Wilson, uh, and there's a, uh, a uh, and, and President Reagan engaged in them, President Bush, President Clinton engaged in them. But I fully agree with the implication of your question that it's uh, evidence of a breakdown in trust. If the law is unconstitutional, that's the most important reason for you to veto it. Uh, and, uh, and, and to say that I want to take advantage of it. The classic example there was arms sales to Saudi Arabia was passed, a substantially controversial thing, very difficult to get it by Congress. Um, President Reagan uh, said, um, sign this, but I noticed it had a one-house veto in it so that after approving arms sales to Saudi Arabia, a single House of Congress could say no. Now, I don't like that. He anticipated the Supreme Court striking down the White House veto, who's correct. But I really need the authority to sell these arms to Saudi Arabia, so I'm going to pretend that the whole law is okay. When the reality is, you wouldn't have had the one without the other. They passed the Congress as a, as a package. And so that gets to your fundamental point about the breakdown in trust. There's only one way to resolve it. The only one reasonable, sensible way that the founders intended, uh, as I see it, and that is disputes between two branches that cannot otherwise be resolved, take it to the third branch. The issue here is if you are a federal judge appointed for life, or it's called actually good behavior, uh, appointed for good behavior, uh, then just as I had the obligation to vote to go to war or not, they have the obligation to take the case and resolve it. And when I think back on what the great decisions of our time uh, are, certainly Brown versus the Board of Education for its outcome, if not its reasoning, and U.S. versus Nixon, where the court said the law applies even to the President of the United States. So that's where the courts have let us down. And uh, two more, yes. Thank you very much, Congressman. <clears throat> I'm a physician, and of course I dispute the ACA from its very inception. But I'm curious in, in with regard to what you talked about today. The Medicare law explicit, explicitly says that the Congress has no right to interfere at all with decisions made between a doctor and a patient. And the ACA absolutely violates that basic principle. And for me, that's, that is a human, that's, the Constitution was based on opportunities of choice and free will. And Congress has taken every opportunity away in that law. How has that not come up ever? Very good, thank you. And uh, one other question. We're all aware of how Congress passes laws and grants discretion to the President and his agencies to implement the will of Congress through various regulations. Is it possible for Congress to totally delegate the making of laws to the President? For example, yeah. Yeah. the President has the power to pass any law that will clean the air. Yeah. Congress or grants the President the power to pass any law that improves the general welfare. The, uh, for, uh, thank you so much. The first question, uh, the answer, Dr. Zwelling, is Medicare came before the Affordable Care Act. Neither of them trumps in its terms, so if there is a conflict in effect, the later law wins. That's it. So that's why. Yes, it does seem to me to undo the promise of the Medicare law. And it's later in time, therefore it trumps. Um, and as to President's discretion uh, being to give uh, from Congress total discretion, there are some limits. It goes back to the, uh, NLR, uh, NLR, the NRA versus Schechter poultry case in 1937. So here's the issue. The Supreme Court struck down the National Industrial Recovery Act before the pre President Franklin D. Roosevelt got to add his justices to the court. And they said, you are too, you're going way beyond interference with con con uh, effect on commerce. 
and you are giving the National Recovery Agency, the NRA, the broadest possible delegated authority. They were to uh, issue rules that would uh, uh, stop impediments to the economic recovery. Wow. And the uh, Supreme Court struck it down. Two years later, in what's called the switch in time that saved the nine, when President Roosevelt suggested packing the court, uh, the Supreme Court, before, the before adding additional uh, justices, uh, reconsidered that um, and in, uh, in a case involving the child labor laws, uh, decided that there really would, there's a, a whole branch of discretion that we will not look into ever again. And since that time, 1939 to the present, there has been no Supreme Court case striking down delegated authority from Congress as having been given too broadly. So much as I don't like the broad grant of authority in the Dodd-Frank bill, look at the words there, strike down a, finance, a practice in finance that is unfair, wow, as I said, maybe my mortgage rate is unfair. Uh, or determine what industry is critical to the economy. Uh, I think higher education is critical to the economy, but I don't want to be regulated by the, by the federal government as a dean of a law school at a private university. I would have to say the present state of Supreme Court law is very, very much pro the president and not setting up a limit to the Congress's ability to delegate, which is a good point on which to conclude since I see our host approaching menacingly. <laughs> Uh, f from my left. <laughs> and that, and that is, we are where we are today because Congress has not done its job. It passes laws like that. It avoids the votes that are difficult. And they should not be heard to complain and you should not tolerate your congressman or congresswoman who says I'd love to stop it but I couldn't because they, they could. And we are in the situation we are because courts won't hear the cases. They are timid uh, when the whole concept of an independent judiciary is, uh, is that they be strong and protect us all. Uh, it's been a privilege to come here again today, oh, and I must say, because it's my privilege to say, to be dean of the finest law school at the finest university, <laughs> uh, Chapman University. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Um, Tom, I was asked at the table to ask you when you're going to announce you're going to run for the U.S. Senate from California. <laughs> no answer to that one. Huh? Happy as deed. All right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thanks all of you for coming. Thanks all of you for being supporters of Cato. We really, really appreciate your help in trying to create a free and prosperous society. Have a great day. <laughs>